podcast producer Trent here. This episode is a live recording of the Science Shambles podcast, a science Q&A we did on Sunday. The show hosted by Robin Ince and Dr. Helen Chesky. As usual, guests this week were Professor Brian Cox and Professor Brian Green and music from Dunya Lavrova. You can check out cosmicshambles.com slash stay at home for all the previous episodes uh, on YouTube and whatnot, youtube.com slash cosmicshambles. That's also where you can go to drop a tip in the jar to help out acts and artists and everyone who is struggling at the moment. And patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to support the Cosmic Shambles Network. Hello, welcome to the Shambles Set Home Festival. It is our traditional, as it is, well, it's the second time we've done it, we'll count that as traditional, um, Sunday Science Q&A. Uh, we have uh, an enormous number of questions that you have sent in. We have three brilliant guests who I'll be introducing you to shortly. I'll just do a quick bit of housekeeping, which is to say uh, we've recorded a load of shows in the last 10 days, and you can catch up with them both as an audio version and a video version, either on YouTube or iTunes. Uh, we've done interviews with Mark Gatiss, with Chris Hadfield, with Joe Brown, Sarah Pascoe, there's lots of musicians and other things such as that. And also next week, uh, 10 a.m. every day, that's British summertime, 10 a.m. every day, uh, we have a show, uh, myself and Josie Long, and uh, our guests include uh, Rhys Shearsmith from Inside Number 9 and uh, Philippa Perry, who uh, has written two great books, one one which is very important at the moment, How to Stay Sane, the other one also possibly, uh, uh, which is the book you wish your uh, parents had read, which is about, you know, dealing with children, I imagine at the moment in our isolated situation that's quite important and we also have uh, adam k uh, former doctor adam k he's going to be on on tuesday um so keep up to date with all those things uh, i will quickly mention as well that uh we have a tip jar at the bottom of this we are collecting money for people who are going to be hit really hard by uh things well for instance a, a lot of people in the performing industry uh have been really hit hard by the fact that all their work's been cancelled for at least the next four months so we're collecting money for people who are going to be hard hit by that and also some of the smaller venues that may well be struggling that's the housekeeping out of the way. Welcome to the Science Q&A. Uh, I today am wearing, I don't know if you can see that, it's the Science March t-shirt that was 2017 across the world. Some of you were on it. You may well remember some of the excellent chants such as, what do we want? Cats in a superposition. Uh, when do we want them? Until observed. And uh, what do we want? Evidence-based policy, which is pretty pertinent for now. When do we want it? Until peer review, after peer review. So there we go. That's uh, that's what we're up to. And uh, I have with me someone I also was with at the Science March and is Helen Chersky. Hello, Helen Chersky. Hello, Hello. Helen. Hello. Hello. Uh, yes, I was at the start. I don't have an exciting T-shirt. I'm very sorry. I have, I've realised, so all of this is a lot like living on the ship, you know, I'm in confined environments. Uh, there's a limited number of places to go and do. This is very familiar territory. And I have started, genuinely started wearing the things I wear on the ship. So uh, the last time I wore this top was at sea. Um, so yes, not, not, it's not very exciting to look at, but you know, it makes me feel at home. Oh, it's filled with stories. Then it's stories, a t Then it's a t-shirt, a, a dark drab t-shirt, but with many stories in the threads. What are you saying so, about the t-shirts, Robin? Come on. Right. What's your show and you have right. for us? So this this might well be of use use in these times. So it looks like a wine glass. It's called a Pythagorean cup, and a friend three D printed this for me a few years ago, and I love this. It's um it's a very simple concept, and it's designed to stop you drinking too much or to stop greedy drinkers. And um, so I'm going to show you what. So it looks like a wine glass on the outside. It's got this little post in the inside there, and I'm going to bend my laptop uh, camera forward, Robin. You might have to help me when it's in the right yeah, place. Yeah, that's good. That's great. 
Okay, so now I've got some uh, some green stuff, which is being my wine. So if I can put wine in my wine glass, and it's all right. And so this is an acceptable amount of wine. That's an acceptable amount of wine. But if we start getting greedy and fill the whole thing up, what the glass basically does is empty out. And what you can't see, I'm going to move it up, is it's all running out of the bottom. Um, so it's a very clever thing. So if you, basically, if you take too much wine, then... Um, it stops you. You can't drink it and it spills all over yourself. And I will show you how it works. I've got a little diagram here. And um, so what's going on is that inside that post in the middle, there's actually a tube that goes up and then um, a sort of cover on the top. So when you first pour the wine in, it fills up and it just fills up the bottom of the cup. So that's all right. And then at some point you get to the point where it fills everything up and then it also fills up just to the top of the tube. And the thing then is that that liquid has to fall down under gravity. So it falls down, but then there's nothing to fill up the space. So all the rest of the liquid has to come with it. And then we get to the end here where... Um, all of the liquid is it's a siphon. It's siphoning out of the bottom. Uh, and so you are deprived of your wine because you were too greedy <laughs> in the first place. And so, um, you know, the, allegedly this concept, uh, Pythagoras came up with this concept. And there are uh, diagrams of it. I don't, I don't know whether anyone's ever found an original one. But just in case anyone, you know, is thinking of turning to drink in these difficult times, that could be your solution. Um, and actually, this slightly separate to the wine but this mechanism this siphoning is also a part of how modern toilets work quite a lot of them so it's very useful siphoning so that's my I, show I, I feel that the sales of that glass are going to be very low it's going to be very low as long as this pandemic uh, continues to be quite honest um we are joined by two other scientists as well uh one of whom brian green is the author of this fantastic book i interviewed him uh, a few weeks ago and we're going to put that up soon until the end of time is is, is a, a wonderful book with some some beautiful things about the uh, the entropy two-step uh joined by brian green and also by hello, brian brian. Hello, hello both brian's hello um, we are gonna. We're just gonna get straight on with. We're the, just gonna get straight on with the questions because we've had so many in since uh, last week. Um, I'm gonna. Uh, I'll, right. I'll start off. This is from Jack Ploppy. I'm not entirely sure his surname is is uh, his, but this is what he used on the Jack Ploppy would like to know what is at the centre of a gas giant. Brian Cox, can I start you on that? So a gas giant planet. So the gas giants yeah. now are in our solar system of Jupiter and Saturn. And um, the, the thing to remember is that the conditions inside those planets are very alien to the conditions that we experience here on the surface of the Earth. Extremely high pressures and extremely high temperatures. So you get very unusual states of matter. And uh, what's thought, I mean, I should say, if you rewind, early in their formation, these things are made out of the same stuff that we are. So we think that planets like Saturn probably began as, as rocky worlds, not unlike the Earth, very, very early on. But they quickly accumulated a lot of matter and grew and grew and grew. So the pressures increased, the, the temperatures increased. And so now we think that if you go to the core of something like Jupiter, there are uh, exotic substances like metallic hydrogen, which are the, 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 a sort of a, well, a, a, a liquid or, or, or solids that are compressed. So you get helium, hydrogen, things like that compressed to incredibly high temperatures, which behave in an unusual way. And actually one of the aims of the Juno mission, which is currently in orbit around Jupiter, um, is to try and understand, to really give us a cross-sectional picture of that gas giant planet, because um, 
it's appropriate to be slightly vague because we don't fully understand what is what what the structure if you might have sliced through a planet like Jupiter, we don't fully understand what it is. But it, we're certainly talking about exotic forms of matter that we don't experience here on Earth. Brilliant. Um Brian, uh Brian, you uh in your book have beautiful descriptions of the tiny fluctuations at the beginning of the universe that that lead to the, the matter we can observe and 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 our own experience. And uh, Ian wanted to know though, why is space so empty? Well Space has been undergoing a tremendous expansion over the past 13.8 billion years. So our suggests that early on, the universe was incredibly small, it was incredibly dense, and it underwent this rapid swelling. And as things swell, the matter, the energy spreads out over a larger and larger volume. So you have that process carry on for almost 14 billion years, and the rate and the size that the universe achieves through that expansion is such that the volume is huge. And so you've got this matter, this energy spread through this ever larger volume, it becomes ever less dense. And that's why there's so much empty space. I mean, in a, in a typical cubic centimeter space, you just got a handful of particles on average throughout the entire cosmos. There are pockets where it's more dense, like the the planet that Brian Cox just spoke about, that's a, a region where there's a lot of matter in a region of space. You can even get more dense with black holes. That's a tremendous amount of matter crushed into a tiny volume of space. But on average, you go to some random part of space and it just has a handful of particles floating through what otherwise is a void. And I, is it I think if I remember, I, I was just going to say, I think if I remember the number, if you add up everything, so all the energy, the, the, dark, the, the energy, dark energy, dark matter, matter. I think something like is it five protons worth per cubic yeah. meter, I think yeah. is a number. That's if yeah. you add up the whole lot on the average. Imagine that. And that's including all the, the energy that's uh, taken up in the, the accelerating expansion of the universe, the so-called dark energy, which is about 70% of it. But yeah, just think about that. Five hydrogen nuclei is worth of energy on average per cubic meter. And if you go even a little bit further, talk about that dark energy. We consider the dark energy to be the most potent force that's currently driving the expansion of space, as Brian Cox just mentioned. It's actually speeding up in its expansion from the repulsive gravity of that dark energy. But if you measure that dark energy in a, in a cubic meter, it only has enough energy to keep a 100-watt light bulb running for about a trillionth of a second. So in any given volume of space, there just isn't a lot on the scales that we're used to from everyday life. But it's really, so I was re reading your book last night, Brian, and um, the, the thing that was in there, a really nice explanation of why the universe then isn't just uniformly full of not very much, that we do get these really astonishing concentrations of stuff, and, and it's all to do with gravity. Yeah, you know, gravity is the dominant force that governs how the universe evolves on the largest of scales. And it has the property that for ordinary matter, not the dark energy, but for ordinary matter, gravity is an attractive force. It pulls things together. So if there's a region that's a little bit more dense than the region around it, the gravitational pull is a little bit stronger. It pulls in a little bit more of the matter in the environment and it gets denser still. So it's a runaway process. It gets denser still, it pulls in more stuff. And that process continues ultimately yielding stars and planets and stuff like you and me. So yeah, 
It is the gravitational force that is responsible for there being any structure in the universe at all. Well, this leads us straight on to uh, 10-year-old Henry uh, wants to know, uh, wants to know, why does gravity exist? Now, I mean, that's the great thing. These I'm going to ask Brian Cox for the answer to that question. Well, thank you, Brian. And the, the answer is, fundamentally, we don't know. Um, it is one of, there are properties of the universe that as far as we know, and luckily, I think, probably uh, will always be the case, that, that are um, axioms, if you like, that they are the way that our universe is. So, so I can describe what Einstein's model of gravity is, which is that another of Brian's books, The Fabric of the Universe, we imagine space and time as being uh, uh, molded together, if you like, or, or, or part of the, the, the structure of the universe, if you like. Is it, we call it the fabric of the universe. And Einstein's picture is that matter and energy um, interact with that fabric. It can cause it to distort or it can cause it to stretch, or it can cause it to shrink. And depending on what kind of matter and energy those things are that are present in the universe. And gravity is uh, what we see as the curvature of the universe. It's the response of matter to the curvature of the fabric of the universe created by matter and energy. So if you ask, you know, there's that picture, which is not entirely accurate, but it's good enough. If you imagine, There's that famous rubber sheet picture where you imagine um, putting something heavy, like a bowling ball, into it and, it, and and the sheet will curve. And if you imagine rolling something around, which would be a little marble or something like that, then it would not go in a straight line. It would deviate. And if you rolled it in the right way, it would go into orbit around the bowling ball because of the curvature of the fabric. And that's a a, a rough analogy for what gravity is in Einstein's model but that's the model. Now, whether that's the reality of the situation, I think we said in an earlier program, there are people, uh, we're talking about books, um, Sean Carroll's latest book, for example, in which he describes attempts by some theoretical physicists to derive these things, space-time, space and time themselves, from a more fundamental theory, which would be a theory of quantum mechanics, for example. So, so the, the, that's a long answer to a very short question. The, the, the short answer is, we don't know what gravity is, and perhaps we'll never know what it is or why it exists. I don't know if there's an equation, but it very often, I think we found this on tour last year, the shorter and simpler the question appears to be, the longer the answer that will actually be required to... In well, a, I think I the, said... I mean, maybe, maybe Brian wants to come in, but, but I think I, I remember saying to you on a, probably what our life shows, that, 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 that idea that you can't derive a universe from first principles at the moment, we can't do that. There are, some, there are many properties of the universe, um, which, we, which the speed of light being a constant, for example, um, the, the, the fabric of the universe itself in Einstein's theory. These things are... Um, things that we have to put in by experiment. We have to observe our universe. And we can derive an awful lot from some basic principles, but there are basic principles. And uh, I think, I'd like to know what Brian thinks, but, but I think that's always going to be the case. I don't think that, we're gonna, that anyone is going to be able to sit down. It will be possible, even in principle, to sit down with a blank sheet of paper and derive every property of the universe from maybe one free parameter, you know, one number or something like that. Well, you know, a little bit naively hopeful that maybe <laughs> we will one day be able to go beyond the situation that you absolutely correctly describe as things are today. I mean, it was Einstein himself who wondered whether, as he put it, God had any choice 
in the creation of the universe, which is basically the question that you are raising. Is it possible that this universe is the only consistent, logically coherent universe that could possibly exist? Or, as our current theories seem to suggest, are there many, many universes in principle that might exist, and we just are one of that grand collection? In fact, some have gone further. Maybe somebody will ask about this. There are some suggestions that maybe those other possible universes with different properties, maybe they're really out there. Maybe there really are other universes, and ours is just one of this collection. And uh, it's a pretty far out sounding idea, the multiverse, but it's one that people are at least investigating as a real possibility. And in that case, the answer to why our universe has this or that property, it might not have a first principles fundamental explanation. explanation. There might be many there might possible be many universe, many possible properties, and we just live in that universe, perhaps that's compatible with the physical and chemical and biological processes necessary for our form of life. So we might live in this universe for the very same reason that we live on Earth and not on Neptune, right? The conditions on Neptune just aren't, you know, compatible with our form of life. Maybe we live in this universe because it's the one that has properties compatible as well with our form of life. Um, th this brings us thinking of uh, where life is compatible. Uh, uh, Helen, for you, Verity, who's nine years old, she would like to know, why is Mars the next planet we want to visit and not one of the others? <laughs> um And it's got a surface you can stand on. Those two things are probably quite high up in the hierarchy. Um, so Venus, although it's often called our uh, sister planet, it's very might may have been very similar at the start. Now has horrific temperatures of 400 degrees or something on the surface. Um, lots of acid-filled clouds and. So although we probably could get there more quickly, one of the Brian's might correct me on this, it's probably a lot harder because you need a lot more protection um, and, and possibly less interesting in terms of structure because it is just a vicious, acidic, very hot, very harsh environment. Um, and Mars is the sort of place where you can go to, you could stand on the surface. We've got robots that are trundling around the surface there now. Um, and so, and actually, I think a lot of this um, is about, it's about human point of view and it's that we can see so our dominant uh, the thing that the sense that we are most aware of is sight and it's one of the reasons that I struggle as an ocean person convincing people that the ocean is interesting because you can't see through it but on Mars you can see and in the same way that you had pictures from the surface of the moon where you could look across the surface and the visual aspect of it really appeals to humans so so there are probably more technical answers but I think that in terms of human incentives um, once you've got past the practical bits, Mars looks like a place you could go to and stand on. And it is the, you know, you, you um, we're already seeing lots of interesting things about its history. And that's the other thing, that it's history. Everyone, there's this idea of what, why does our planet look like this? Even if you're only interested in Earth, the most instructive thing you can do is look at other planets because it could have been like that. So why are we like this and not like that? And Mars is a place that has, that might have answers to that sort of question. Um, I've got a, a question now from let's go uh, Marcus. Uh, nine, Marcus, nine-year-old Marcus wants to teleport to school. He would like to know: Will teleportation ever be possible? Which uh, who would like to take that first of all? Um, um, I'll give maybe a first pass, and <laughs> Brian can then correct. Uh, but teleportation, 
of individual particles is something that we can do today. It makes use of a strange feature of quantum mechanics called quantum entanglement. And that's this weird idea that Einstein himself wrote the first paper about in 1935 with two colleagues where basically they showed for reasons that they were trying to undercut quantum mechanics, not trying to promote it. They found a weird feature of the math which said that a particle over here and a particle over there could be far apart and yet they could act as though they are right next to each other, act as though they're kind of connected by an invisible quantum thread. And that long distance connection, they thought, meant that quantum mechanics was not actually a full and complete theory of the world. Something was kind of wrong with it. But in the intervening, whatever, 80, 90 years, we've now not only shown that this is not a flaw of quantum mechanics, it's a feature. It's a spectacular feature of quantum mechanics. It's been experimentally established. And then to get to the question, if you have two distant particles that are acting like they're next to each other, you can leverage that into a process where you bring in a third particle, have it intermingle with this one over here, and that intermingling can then be used at the distant location to create an exact replica of the particle at the original location. And that's a kind of teleportation. You bring in a particle here, and a version of it appears at the distant location. You destroy the first particle in the process, but that is a way to get a particle from here to there. Now, that's one particle. We are not one particle. We're many, many particles. And I don't think there's anybody who, at the moment, feels that the process that we use to teleport single particles can be leveraged in any practical way to teleport huge collections of particles. But I will say that when we finally do that, let's say we are able to figure out how to teleport large collections of particles, I will not be the first person to step into that teleporter because <laughs> I don't know what the heck is actually going to happen and the original is destroyed in the process. So I'll leave it to somebody else to, uh, to see whether it really works, but I, I don't think that it's going to happen in any reasonable time frame, if ever. We all know what happened to Seth Brundle. We know what happened to Seth Brundle. He imagined that he was a fly who dreamt he was a man and the dream was beautiful, but now the dream is over. Favourite film of all time, David Cronenberg's The Fly. Brian, uh, thanks, Brian. Brian. Now, now over to Brian. By the way, I'm really enjoying the Python. <laughs> Uh, next week, I think we'll try and get the mathematician Brian Butterworth as well. So thank you, Brian. What do you think, Brian? What do I, can I hand over to Brian? Thank you. Uh, Brian. Uh, Brian Cox, sorry. Do, would you like we, to add anything we, to we that? Could also have, we, could, we, could, we could also have Brian Schmidt. We could have Brian May. Brian Eno. There are loads of Brian. Which we did, Brian, um, once, of course. If we, you did. Yes. we did. We did once do uh, a show at the <laughs> so it has oh. been done. You might find more Brian's, but we did find, I think, eight Helens on the same evening. Wow. <laughs> but there is, a, with, with Brian, though, there is a a kind of you almost wonder if there's a nominative determinism of the fact that because the number of times I type out your name and I type it brain rather than Brian and 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 it annoys me because I think he'd like that uh but the, but apart from nominative determinism let's get back to uh, the subject in hand no no I mean, uh, I agree completely with um what Brian said it's uh, the one of the, what's interesting is um as Brian said, it's it's um, we know how to teleport single photons, for example. So, and one one of the great challenges, and it's a challenge that also exists in building quantum computers, actually, which are real things, but some of the same engineering challenges exist, is to isolate these systems from the rest of the environment. Um, when you have particles that are, as Brian said, entangled together, 
you have to stop them from interacting with everything else. And then you can keep them in this strange state. So, well, it's not a strange state. It's a natural state of being for particles. It's fundamental in quantum mechanics. It's a real thing. But once they get entangled and start interacting with everything else, then the, 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 the properties go away. They don't behave in the way that you would like if you were a quantum computer, for example, or a teleportation device. And actually what's interesting is if you, when I learned quantum mechanics, so back in the, if you, if you learn quantum mechanics in the 80s and 90s and you look at the old textbooks, there isn't really a great mention of this. But if you look at new textbooks now, there's a property called decoherence, which is a really now become a, a fundamental part of the theory, which is, which is trying to understand how um, small systems become entangled with the environment and what that means for the emergence of what we might call classical reality, which is the, the world that we see. So, so we're talking about cutting-edge physics here, um, but because of that delicacy, if, nothing, if there's nothing else that we don't understand, then at least we understand this delicacy in maintaining these systems in these states that allow things like teleportation to happen. And it is extremely delicate and probably impossible, as Brian said, to expand beyond the few particles at most. Right. Now, the, those experiments, etc., are hard to do just generally around the house and, and observe them. So I'm going to now go to something with you, Helen, uh, which is something people can observe, uh, which is this from Julian in the Forest of Dean. And he was so can you explain why hot water freezes quicker than cold water? And it's a very common question, it's a very, very counterintuitive yeah. thing for a lot so of people. So it's something called the Mapemba effect. And um, it was it was discovered uh, by a school pupil actually who and I think it was ice cream they, they were told to do an experiment uh, to go home to see how quickly ice cream froze and he discovered that warm things freeze faster and it's obviously it's very weird for one reason which is that if you have something warm and you want to cool it down to cold it has to go through cool on the way so you would think well if it has to pass through being the cool temperature then surely something that is already at the cool temperature has a head start and would get there first and it turns out that this is not always the case. So it's 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 definitely true. It definitely happens. Um, I've seen it in action. If you're in a super cold place, you can um, throw hot water into the air and hot water will turn into something like snow and cold water will just splash back down to the ground. So the hot water freezes in the air. The cold water doesn't. It doesn't happen in... Um, it's very difficult to study. So what scientists have found is that uh, it, it, ha it doesn't always happen. And there's a lot of controversy over the fundamental mechanism. And a lot of it seems to come down to that water is a really weird thing. You know, just because it's everywhere, we take it for granted. But actually part of the reason that life can be so varied and interesting is because water is so fundamentally weird. If you look at other molecules that size, they're completely different. They behave in completely different ways. Um, so, so water is very odd. And it seems that something in the way that water molecules are clustering on very short timescales might be causing this effect but it is really difficult to study and even though it was first seen back in the 60s i think 60s or 70s there is no scientific consensus on exactly why it happens there are mechanisms for why it might happen in some situations but there is no overall definitive answer on it definitely happens because of this all the time but it does seem to go right down to the molecular level molecular nature of water and these weird little clusters that water kind of forms and unforms um so water isn't just lots of molecules behaving, bouncing off each other. They're kind of joining and, you know, splitting up and protons are sort of moving around by themselves and coming back again. And so something in that clustering does this. But it is, it is true that in at least some situations, the Mapemba effect is real.
Brilliant. We're going to take. Uh, oh, sorry, Brian Cox. Did you want to uh, add something? Can I just add. Well, uh, just something Helen said there, where she said things have to cool down um, to, heat um, again. to heat up again at some level. Or um, these counterintuitive effects. I was. Um, I'm just making that. Well, when all this is over, we'll continue filming a series for the PDC about. Uh, and one part of it is about the formation of stars. And um, I read some of the recent literature on this, and that idea that things have to cool down first is very relevant in the early universe for the formation of the first stars. So what you had was a, a gas, essentially just a lot of hydrogen um, protons floating around and some helium, nothing else. And that kind of gas can't cool down. It's very difficult for it to cool down. And, and if, if you think what cool means, hot or hot means, hot means everything's moving around very fast, and cool means things are moving around very slowly. So things have to move around slowly. The gravity, the force that Brian mentioned, this creator sculpture of the universe, to be able to actually collapse these clouds of hydrogen and helium nuclei together to form the first stars. And the first step is thought to be, or almost certainly now I think is known to be, the formation of hydrogen molecules. So you have to get two protons, which are together, and you have to get some electrons to go in orbit around them and make them stick together to form a molecule. And if you can do that, then these things can vibrate and spin around and radiate energy away and the whole cloud can cool down so everything can start moving around fast and then gravity can, can collapse them to form the first stars. And until very recently, that chemistry, its fundamental chemistry, was not very well understood at all. It's a real knife-edge process. And, and when you read about it, this formation of the first hydrogen molecules in the universe you get a sense that we're very fortunate that it happened. It's another of these things that, again, Brian referred to earlier, where you say, is this universe, you know, it, it, look out on a universe that obviously allows us to exist. How likely is that? And we don't know the answer. This is one of those tiny little processes of gas clouds cooling down um, that, that seems to be so delicate that you think it could have gone another way so easily. It's a remarkable thing. So, so without that formation, this chemistry of the formation of the first hydrogen molecules, then we wouldn't be here. It's, it's a remarkable thing. Right, we're going to take a, a, a quick break. I think you've given a lot to uh, to contemplate initially. We uh, uh, we're going to go over to Melbourne, where uh, uh, a friend of ours, Dunya Dunya Lavovera, is uh, a brilliant violinist and uh, has created some pieces for us. And I'll just quickly mention before we go to that as well. Uh, just remind you about the uh, the tip jar at the bottom here. Uh, we're collecting money to help some of the artists, performers, and uh, other creative people who have have no work at the moment. I know that's true for a lot of people, but to try and make sure there's a fund for them and also for some of the uh, the smaller art centres uh, where many of the people uh, on this network go off and, and perform. So uh, thank you if you can donate anything, but of course it's all free as well and available to you. And now let's listen to, I'm very excited by this, uh, let's listen to the first, I think it's going to be a cover version by uh, our violinist friend Dunya. Here we are. Hi lovely people, this is Dunya Lavrova from Melbourne and this is really a lastminute.com kind of situation. Uh, really in experiments. So normally I would be performing with either a band or a piano player, but you know, hashtag social distancing and you know, really we have to get really creative these days. And I have no option really but to play with myself. Now I really mean that literally because I actually happen to have some backing tracks where I play all of the string instruments. 
And I recorded them with my friend Sean Kennedy in London, who also plays uh, drums and bass on those tracks. And really, these are my very own arrangements of some, some of my favorite rock classics, which I really hope you will enjoy. And the next one really doesn't need any introduction.
Welcome back. Thank you very much to uh, Danielle Vobra, who, as I said before, is out in uh, Melbourne and uh, recorded that for us. And she's done some other stuff as well. And she's done quite a few shows with this in the past. Compendium of Reason and Nine Lessons and Carols for uh, Curious People. So find out about her work. She does. She's absolutely brilliant to see live as well. If you if you get the chance to see uh, her live and remember, she's one of those artists that's very often in some of those kind of small art centres and stuff. Uh, so please go to our tip jar if you can. Um, we've had some uh, questions from the live feed um and uh so leon 13 year old leon would like to know is it true that the faster you go the slower time affects you now that's an interesting so uh, brian green start with start well with the answer is both yes and no and it depends on precisely what one means by time affects you so from your perspective time will always elapse at the same rate you will never experience literally, psychologically, physically, a slowing of time. But Einstein taught us in 1905 in the special theory of relativity that if you've got two individuals, let's say I am watching you, Robin, and you are in motion and I am observing your clock, I will see your clock tick off time at a slower rate compared to my clock, compared to my watch. And that literally is not just a discrepancy in our clocks. It truly is the time itself for you, from my perspective, is elapsing more slowly. If I look at you really carefully, I will see you if you're going near the speed of light. I'll see you in slow motion. I'll see your eyes blinking slowly. I'll see your head turning slowly. Now, if someone were to interview you and say, Robin, hey, why are you like going in slow motion? You're like, what are you talking about? Because from your perspective, Time is elapsing as it always does. Indeed, if you were to turn back and look at me, you would say that I am in slow motion and that my clock is taking off time slowly. So the answer is that from a relative perspective, one person viewing somebody else in motion, that person will say that the clock in motion is taking off time more slowly. But from the perspective of the person itself, it will be time as always. That's what I, a really nice. Oh, sorry, Helen. I was just very quickly, and there's a series of books that were written the a long time that were written a long time ago, or a book um, that show that really brings this to life. And I think it's Mr. Tompkins, one of the mm. one of the brands. George Gamow wrote, wrote that, yeah. Yeah, and and what it is is it's he tells stories of this man walking around a world where the speed of light is much closer to normal speeds. So all these things that Brian was describing that you can only see when you get super close to the speed of light. Well, suddenly that speed is a, a sort of speed you'd see in real life. And he, he paints a picture of this man walking through the world and describes some of the things that he would see. Brian Cox, there's a nice way of thinking about this, which is, um, so, so what, what is a clock measuring? In, in Einstein's picture, in Einstein's model in relativity, it's measuring the distance you travel over space-time. Right. So let, let's imagine that Einstein's theory is a, is a theory of things called events, which are things that happen in space and time. So an event would be this. That's an event happened somewhere that we can make. Um, Einstein's theory says that the clock measures the distance between events. That, that if you, if you, so, for example, if I, if I came to your attic now and, and said hello and shook your hand and then, and then I wandered away, and then uh, a week later, we agreed to come back and I would come back into your attic and shake your hand again. What the, the watch on our wrist 
that the clock that we carry with us measures the distance we have traveled in over space-time between those two events. Now, self-evidently, that distance that we have traveled is different because you've done different things to me. And so what you find when you get back together again is not surprisingly the clocks measure different time intervals because we took different paths uh, over space-time between those two events. And that's another way to think about Einstein's theory, which I quite like. So a clock is a, is a, is a measurer. It measures the distance you are traveling over space-time. It's such a beautiful, and when you first confront that, it's so beautiful. And I was watching Planet of the Apes last night, the original, the original one, where they're kind of talking about the speed near light and how they get there. And I thought, what's the biggest science error in it? And I think the biggest one is Charlton Heston's in his spaceship smoking a cigar. As far as I know, there's a lot of issues with the smoking of cigars in uh, in any form of uh, of space module. Um, but uh, this is um, now this one's no, there isn't. It's all right. You can do that. You can smoke a cigar in a spaceship these days um can you, you could smoke a cigar on the international space station i don't think they'd want you to but you could <laughs> no i think you'd be in trouble i think certainly the the, the the apollo missions i think there have been quite a few issues with uh um cigars well, no, they, they changed they, they did have 100 percent oxygen atmospheres they, they changed it um after the apollo one tragedy so they, they, they i think the atmosphere is not particularly saturated in oxygen now in a, in a modern spaceship I, I still think no. I think if anyone knows, it's a kind of clingy aroma, isn't it? You know, uh, this is uh, Olber's paradox, which I love trying to get my head around. And I, and I think is that we've got a kind of question about that. This is from Deej Sullivan. And uh, Deej wants to know, given the number of stars in the sky, why is it so dark at night? Uh, shall I go to Brian Green? Yeah, first? sure. No, that, as you, you correctly reference it as, as an as a paradox that was put forward by a guy named Heinrich Olbers. I don't remember the exact year, but exactly as the questioner asks, if you imagine looking out in any direction in space, and if you imagine that the universe is infinitely big and infinitely old, then there's going to be some star in that direction, and light photons from that star should be entering your eye. So the thought would be that regardless of what direction you look, the sky should be light because there's some star emitting some light that's going to smack into your retina. But you recognize that in making that statement, you have to assume that the universe is infinitely big and infinitely old, that in any direction there's been enough time for light from any star at regardless of whatever distance it may be to have had enough time to reach your eyeball. But we don't think that the universe is infinitely old. It might be infinitely big, but not infinitely old, which means there's a finite amount of time for any light that's been emitted to reach you. And so there are many directions in the night sky where even if there is a star somewhere in that direction, it's simply too far away for its light to have reached us. The only light that we see are from stars that are sufficiently close for the light that they emit to have had enough time to reach us. And that's just the finite points of light in the sky that we actually see. And that's why, that's the answer to that paradox. We live in an expanding universe that we believe has uh, not been hanging around for infinitely long. It's just been hanging around for 13.8 billion years. Well, that brings me actually that I can't find who asked. This I question. can't find who asked this question, so I apologise to whoever it was. But th th a couple of people wanted to know if the universe starts from a singularity, how can it be infinitely big? Those people who consider it to be infinitely big, and I think that is again, it's a very difficult thing to to, to grasp. Well, but it, less but so it's I... only because we scientists describe it incorrectly. 
So we often describe the universe emerging from a single point. And that might be true if the universe itself on the largest of scales has a finite size. But if, as you suggest, and there may be a real possibility that the universe is infinitely big, it was also infinitely big at the Big Bang itself. Now, that's a hard idea to have in mind, but it would be a region, infinitely big region, in which every small piece of it is infinitely dense. And we emerge from one little speck in that infinite expanse. But you're absolutely right. If it's infinitely big today, then go halfway back to the Big Bang. It's still infinitely big. Go 99% back to the Big Bang. It's still infinitely big because no matter what you divide infinity by, it's still infinity. So, yes, it's a wrong image that many of us unfortunately put forward because we want these ideas to have some pedagogical link to the way people think about things in the ordinary world. But the universe is not the ordinary world. And it could have been infinitely big and infinitely dense at the Big Bang. So Katie Mack's excellent new book, The uh, the End of Everything, the, uh, the End of Everything, actually has a little quote where it says, you know, it, ultimately it, it's pretty much impossible for a finite sized brain to fit infinity inside it. Mm. And I think, you know, that kind of difficulty of comprehension. Um, I'm going to throw over to you, Brian Cox, because this is a reference to our theme tune from Infinite Monkey Cage. But David would like to know if space and matter are infinite, does there have to be an infinite number of U's? Um, I, I, I mean, I would say yes. However, um, I have a dim memory of a mathematician, a pure mathematician getting very angry when I said that, uh, so, so I still feel it has not been explained otherwise to me that if the universe is infinite in extent, officially infinite, which it may well be, it's far bigger than the piece we can see. We know that. Um, then, uh, then it seems to me that there will be a, a, prob a an infinite number of me's and an infinite number of views out there in the infinite universe. Uh, unless Brian has a, a different... I just remember a pure mathematician saying this is absolutely not necessarily the case, and uh, it confused me, and it still confuses me. Maybe Helen or Brian uh, could... Well, uh, if you don't mind me jumping in on that one, you know, the subtlety, of course, is that there are different kinds of infinities. You know, there are the infinities one, two, three, four, five up to infinity, and then there's the infinity associated with, say, all real numbers where it's a larger kind of infinity. So you might worry as a pure mathematician that we're too quickly skating over infinities in making these statements. But in quantum mechanics, in any finite region with any finite amount of energy, which we think characterizes our observable universe, the universe itself might be infinitely big, but the part that we have access to is only finite in size and has finite energy. Then a lot of those subtleties with infinities go away. And then you do come to the conclusion that you were suggesting, which simply is in any finite region of space, there are only finitely many possible quantum states or roughly arrangements of particles and it's i like the analogy i like is if you have a deck of cards and you keep shuffling it and shuffling it there are only a finite number of distinct orders so sooner or later the shuffles have to yield the same order that you had previously similarly in an infinite universe with all of these finite patches that are like our observable universe there are only finitely many particle arrangements and therefore by the same reasoning, sooner or later, the quantum state, or roughly the particle arrangement, has to repeat. And if it repeats, 
Then there's another one of you out there and there's another one of me. And there are all sorts of in-betweens where maybe, you know, it's, you know, it's Robin's head on my body out there. That's a possibility, too. So these in these close uh, replicas can also happen out there in the universe. And um, I, I believe that that is correct. Oh, man. I Oh, man, I immediately saw that image from the 1978 Invasion of the Body Snatchers where uh, the homeless guy wakes up and he's half dog and uh, and and his head just stuck on it as well. You've given me an extra nightmare. Um, Helen, I want to ask you, again, getting back to things that can possibly be built as well. Now, this might be quite a tricky question. But this is a, a, a friend of mine, Alan, who is in the, um, the high-risk group currently during this pandemic, and uh, he says he's trying to make sure that everything is decontaminated, anything with a soft surface, paper, fabric, etc is left for 24 hours anything with a hard service is left for 72 hours and he's trying to uh, build a uv decontamination box or he's going to build a uv decontamination box uh and uh, he just wondered what wavelength uv light do i need and how long exposure to kill the virus now i know you might not know that off the top of your head but i know that as someone who's always researching these kind of things could you give him some advice if you don't know of of, of where to go etc well, perhaps the first thing is just to say why UV might be useful in these situations. Um, so we know that if you take all the colours of the rainbow as you go from red to violet or indigo, whatever it is that's supposed to be at the end, indigo violet, isn't it? Um, that the a photon involved with that colour gets more and more energetic and the ultraviolet is past the end of the violet. So on the scale of visible and near visible light knocking around, ultraviolet is energetic light. And that means that if it hits um, fragile arrangements of molecules, like perhaps a cell or a virus, it might disrupt them. So, so that's, and it also goes for the blue end of the spectrum. So sometimes you see hand dryers that have blue light coming out of them. And that's why, because it, even a little bit of blue light does a little bit of decontamination, um, a tiny bit in that case, but you know, every little helps, um, because it's more energetic. And, and if, if, if one of those photons hits a fragile little, capsule that makes up a cell, then it can disrupt it and destroy it. Uh, so, so that's the idea behind the UV thing. Now, I do not know, I don't know, you know, presumably someone has done the specific tests on how long you would have to um, uh, expose things for. In general, the shorter the wavelength of the UV, the more energetic it is. So if you go to the, you can buy cheap UV torches quite easily that are just past the end of the violet. So they don't give you very much more than the blues that we can normally see, but you can buy, in fact, if I'd known you this question, I've got one in a box just over there, mm. UV torches that go down to about 300 nanometers, for example, um, and they're a lot more energetic. So the problem is they're also slightly more dangerous because if they can disrupt a bacterial cell or a viral capsid, they can also potentially damage you. So you do have to be careful with that, that, you know, I think there's a limit on what you can buy. So you probably can't harm yourself. Um, so, so I don't know the exact numbers on exposure, but I think it's usually quite quick with these um, filtrate. So I've got a UV filter in my lab for filtering water. And it's basically, it's very short exposure, probably a couple of seconds. And anything that's in there that would be damaged by it, gets you know it takes that hit quite quickly so i don't know and i do think you should be extremely cautious in making any of this at home and that is a general thing like uv is great fun when it's making things fluoresce it genuinely can be dangerous um especially because it's what causes sunburn i mean if you're not convinced by the general danger it is what causes sunburn um 
but but in general, more energetic wavelengths will be more damaging, um, and the exposure probably doesn't have to be very long. But I am not a virologist; that is not medical advice, and um, I would exercise extreme caution before taking that too far as a home project because it really could be quite dangerous. Thanks. I, I, I think yeah, I, I know Alan's being very careful with preparation and and good luck and on working on that, Alan. This is uh, a quick question. Adam, uh, we'll rattle through the last few questions. I know you have other things to do. Some of you to have breakfast, some of you to have lunch. Um, Adam, 13 years old, says, uh, my question is, if the universe is expanding all the time, am I getting taller? Now, of course, there's two separate issues there. That There is the biological tallness that we have to separate from his actual separate expansion with the universe, if that were true. So, uh, Brian Cox. Uh, no, uh, at the moment. Uh, the, so so the, there are a, a couple of caveats, but essentially the expansion of the universe is very, very... So we talked about the stretching of the fabric of the universe we mentioned earlier, and it's very gentle at the moment. Um, gravity, the electromagnetic forces between molecules, all those things completely dominate and overcome that expansion. And that will uh, always be the case um, unless that expansion gets more and more violent, which it could do. We don't think so at the moment, but we're not entirely sure. There are scenarios called the big rip scenarios where the rate of the acceleration, if you like, so the expansion gets faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. And it gets so fast that even locally, it will tear, first of all, galaxies apart, and then it will tear stars and planets apart, and then it would tear molecules apart, and ultimately it would tear everything apart. So there are scenarios in the far future, not favoured at the moment, theoretically, but there are scenarios where you can imagine that, which I suppose is nominally or, or getting taller, right? That's probably not what you meant by getting taller. But at the moment, that expansion is so weak, and we think it will always continue to be weak enough that you don't start ripping stretching molecules and stretching stars and planets and so on um six-year-old edith uh, uh hello edith uh, she would like to know i was just gonna, i was just gonna ask brian maybe he had a comment on that but i think no i think that you know the the we're our bodies as you say are held together by the electromagnetic force and it's simply stronger than the gravitational force that's responsible for the swelling of space so we hold together intact at least for now so is that also why as as the as so so that, that is, is the as, sense so, of the, so that is the sense of the galaxies remaining when we see the perspective of space uh, stretching and the galaxies appearing to be the same that's exactly what Brian's just been basically talking about oh, that's why oh, no, we, even now we, we do given the way the universe is behaving at the moment there will come a time in the not tremendously distant future <laughs> tens of billions of years but maybe hundreds where, where the galaxies all recede away from us and the only thing we see is the Milky Way, a light from the stars in the Milky Way. And that already now, the, the, the so-called the horizon in the sense of uh, the galaxies that we can see, there are galaxies that are receding out beyond our horizon now because of that expansion such that we will never see them again if nothing changes in the universe. So you do get to a point where you don't see any of the galaxies, you can't do cosmology, um, but you don't get to a point as far as we know where the expansion is violent enough to rip galaxies and stars and planets apart. That's yeah, why I love talking. The Milky Way together with the local group, so the Andromeda galaxies and so forth, which yes. will have merged all together. But, but absolutely right, the distant galaxies, they'll all disappear, because as Brian said, they'll be driven away by the accelerated expansion of space. 
That's what I love. Yeah, sometimes that's what I love. Yeah, sometimes the foreseeable future is next Tuesday. Sometimes with some of the Bryans, it is uh, about eight hundred billion years, maybe a couple of trillion years. Um, this is uh, um, the next. Oh, this is uh, Joey's question. Joey would like to know. He's ten years old, and he would like to know what is the strangest thing in the universe. Start with you, Helen. Then. Uh, well, so. I'm I'm a, I'm a physicist that does the middle things, uh, ocean physicist here. So I'm I'm going to pick something on Earth because, as far as we know, things on Earth are some of the weirdest things in the universe. Because this is where the complexity really gets going. We've got instead of these single big forces dominating particular things, everything's all mixed together of kind of equal hierarchy, equal place in the hierarchy. So um, my I'm going to pick a thing which is a thing called a siphonophore. Uh, and siphonophores are really weird because they're sort of made of individual little organisms. And this thing floats about in the ocean. It's got multiple stomachs. It's kind of uh, translucent with orange bits. Uh, and it, it basically is a is a colony, but it's a single, it looks like a single animal. Um, and it's got all these loops and weird colorful things. And if you want to look for alien life, don't bother going to other planets. We have plenty down in the deep sea. And I think these siphonophores, uh, which are thoroughly weird, uh, are top of my, one of the things in my top list of weird things in the universe. Brian Green. Well, I can't top psychonophores, which is a uh, pretty spectacular sounding. But what uh, the weirdest thing is to me, you know, the question that strikes me as the deepest one of all is why is there something rather than nothing? Right. This is asked by Leibniz many years ago, and you can imagine that reality might simply not exist in any form that is recognizable to the universe that we are familiar with. How could it be that somehow stuff came into existence? How could it be that even space and time came into existence? So the very fact that there is something rather than nothing is to me the strangest thing of all. Ron Cox. I'll choose two things. Um, one, I would say, very briefly, well, I'd say the human brain, I'd say consciousness is a physical property of the universe that we really and do we not understand. That, and without that, that we'd live in a meaningless universe, I would argue, if there was no consciousness anywhere in it. So this idea that collections of atoms, as Richard Feynman famously put it in that beautiful poem he read the other day, Robin, the atoms that can think, collections of atoms that can understand themselves, that's a remarkable thing. So I'd say the other very brief one, which maybe Brian would like to chip in on as well, is, is black holes. And black holes are strange because of the challenge to our fundamental understanding of physics, because they pose such a challenge to our fundamental understanding of physics. Very simple things, such as uh, is information conserved or could it be destroyed? Um, very simple, foundational, fundamental ideas that black holes challenge us to think about. And they are real things. And I always say physics is the study of real things. So we don't need to imagine these unusual things in the universe. We are observing them now, almost colliding together, you know, one a, one a week or one a month or something. So they really exist. But they really do provide a fundamental challenge, a profound challenge to our understanding of very basic physics. Um, just uh, we've only got time to. Oh, sorry, Brian, did you, Brian Green, did you want to? No, I, I fully agree. Black holes, I think, are the key to the next revolution. And uh, there was a time when they're not even believed by Einstein, and then people grew to accept their existence. And now, very recently, as I suspect most people who are 
in this program, watching this program, know we've taken a quote-unquote photograph of a black hole. So, yeah, they are absolutely real and totally strange. Such a beautiful photograph. That the uh, uh, two, two more questions. This from Frey, who's two more questions. This from Frey, who's fifteen, and Joseph, who's six. I say two more questions. This one, might, I don't know if you can answer this briefly or not. We would like to know what was there before the Big Bang in order to allow it to happen. Which is always such, you know, what came, what was before? Such a big question. I'll give the ten second answer, and then uh, everyone else can give a longer. It depends what you call the Big Bang, right? So, so there's there's a semantic quality to this question. Um, if you call the Big Bang the time when the universe was very hot and very dense at some point about 13.8 billion years ago, which is a measurement that we have, then we do have good theories about what happened before it. The, the theory is called inflation, and it says that space-time was there. It was essentially cold and empty in some respects, but expanding very fast. And then that period in the life of the universe drew to a close, at least in this region, and, that, and then this region heated up and the, the, the particles out of which we are made, it became very hot and very dense. And that's what we used to call the Big Bang. So in that sense, the hot Big Bang, as it's called now, probably wasn't the origin of the universe. There is, there is a phase before that. Now, whether there is an origin, um, Carlos Frank, our good friend Robin, calls it the mother of all Big Bangs. Whether there is an origin in time or whether the universe uh, is infinite, backwards in time um we don't know we don't have the measurements back then but we do have this theory called inflation which could be described as a theory of what happened before the big bang brian would you like to add yeah just to uh tie up with some of the things we discussed before so just jumping off from what brian just said if this inflationary theory is correct some people believe that it implies that our big bang was not the only Big Bang, that there could be many Big Bangs giving rise to these many distinct universes. So one answer to what may have happened before the Big Bang may be other Big Bangs, yielding other universes, and it's Big Bangs all the way back. Right, we're going to end with, uh, this was a question that someone really wanted answered last week, so I have to make sure I have to make sure I ask it today. Brian, one of your favourite TV, Brian Cox, one of your favourite TV shows, I don't know about you, Brian Green or, or Helen, uh, Space 1999. And, of course, you do sometimes, Brian Cox, actually dress up as Martin Landau, Captain Koenig, uh, <laughs> Koenig from that show. Um, and this, this first says, when I was a kid, I loved this show so much. And now the older I've got, I've realised some of the physics of the moon being blasted out of orbit, travelling into interstellar space <laughs> and meteor may well be flawed. So what he would like to know, this is Ian's question. My question is, could an explosion create a wormhole or tear in space that could appear, disappear at regular intervals and propel the moon into interstellar space? space. Let me answer very briefly. One is that, that there, are, there are planets that drift between the stars. So we, we've observed them. So, so we know that, yes, planets and therefore by implication moons, uh, can be torn out, not only of their orbits within solar systems, but out of solar systems by gravitational interactions with other things. So, for example, Neptune's moon Triton is almost certainly a captured moon that came in from somewhere else in our solar system in that case, but we do know that planets can be ejected out of solar systems. So, in that sense, it's not completely mad, right? What is certainly completely mad is that uh, the explosion of a nuclear waste dump on the moon would not deliver sufficient impulse to the moon <laughs> to take it out of its orbit so that's the that's the point and i don't know the wormhole stuff is a whole other we could talk about that for an hour but i'll let somebody else speak 
Brian, would you like to add anything on the uh, interstellar journeys after the uh, tear in the world? Uh, that crazy. Of course, I've never seen the program that you're referring to, but I will say one thing, which is on Einstein's general theory of relativity, space cannot tear. That's one of the qualities of his mathematical theory. But it just so happens that I was fortunate to be involved in the first research project that showed in string theory, a theory that goes beyond general relativity, including quantum mechanics. So if you don't know if this theory is right in terms of describing our actual universe, but the math of string theory we showed allows the fabric of space to rip apart and then to repair itself in a way that doesn't yield any catastrophe as it would in Einstein's theory. So at least when I hear the phrase tear in space, I certainly perk up and listen. And that part could well be true. But Helen, the favourite science fiction series that, uh, as you got older, that, and uh, as you got older and learnt more, you went, "This might be more flawed technically than I imagined." Well, I haven't, but it has just occurred to me that um, this whole point of science fiction, right, is trying stuff out, and that is actually what physicists do. When you, when the physicist says they're building a model, what they're doing is trying out an idea and seeing where it takes them. And science fiction actually does something very similar. It takes an idea and says, "Okay, well, let's take this model of the universe." And, and let it and run it forward and see what happens. And so I just I haven't got a particular I read books rather than watching TV series. So I've read all the classic science fiction. I haven't seen anything that yeah, I haven't watched any of the TV programs. But I do just like this idea that there's there's a, a, compa a comparison to be made between what science fiction does, which is ask the question, what if? And what a what a theoretical physicist does, and I say that as an experimental physicist, because I measure what did. <laughs> I measure what did, and they say what if, and it's it's kind of the same process except with more maths. For the That's like, like the film Sunshine. What, what if, if they send you know uh, some nuclear bombs to the centre of the sun to restart it? Thank you all very much for your time. Can I just recommend again uh, to get hold of this? Obviously, you might, might get hold of it via Kindle at the moment. But uh, until the end of time, by Brian Green, it's it's an absolute delight. I loved reading it and uh, highly recommend that. Uh, also, uh, we should quickly say we mentioned our theme tune earlier. Uh, the composer of that theme tune, I believe, it is his birthday today. So happy birthday, Eric Idle. Um, and uh, also just to mention uh, that uh, um, Chris Lintott, uh, who is going to be on one of our shows very, very soon, Chris Lintott, wonderful on, on, on ideas of astronomy. You may well have seen him on Sky at Night. Uh, next Sunday at 4 p.m., he is also going to be doing a live show as well himself, talking about his books. Of course, all his book tours have been cancelled. Um, before we go to Dunya, I will just quickly mention again, at the moment, we are trying to collect money for some of the people who are going to be uh, you know, finding it very, very difficult over the next few months because they have no work and all of these things been cancelled and to keep also some of the art centres going and some of those kind of places where we go and enjoy gigs um, so thank you very much for watching I'm going to leave you again, I think this is going to be um, ACDC's Thunderstruck um, you could also enjoy there's a film called Thunderstruck also which is, is great so uh, Dunya Lavova, we're going to go over to her but now finally also to say thank you very much to Trent Burton who produces and vision mixes this all the time, thank you very much Brian Green, Brian Cox, Helen Chersky may well see you tomorrow morning at 10am uh, British summertime with Philippa Perry um, I really would like to dedicate to the amazing producers and creators of Stay at Home Festival and Cosmic Shambles Network, Trent and Melinda Burton. And I really would like to send a huge hug to Robin and Helen and everybody else at the studio. Anyway, so the next one is Thunderstruck for Trent and Melinda from their home country, Australia.
Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget cosmicshambles.com slash stay at home to catch up on all the previous episodes, find out who's coming up on upcoming episodes and to leave a tip for acts and artists and venues who are hit hardest at the moment. And if you'd like to support us at the Cosmic Shambles Network, patreon.com slash bookshambles. Oh.